you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. Welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for January 28, 2024. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Heifer Foundation. I'm Jackie. And I'm Barbara. And here is our first story. Wallert students share a story of Ukraine escape. Teen's essay about fleeing war in her native country is one of 15 chosen by New York Times. It was the morning of February 24, 2022, and 13-year-old Vera was getting ready for another day of school in Lviv, Ukraine. But when she entered the kitchen of her family's home, the teenager found her parents whispering urgently. Her mother sat at the table, holding her head in her hands. After Vera asked repeatedly, her parents told her what had happened. Russian military forces had invaded Ukraine in a stark escalation of, of Russo-Ukrainian war violence. I was really shocked, Vera said. We were all afraid, and it was stressful because no one knew what would happen. Vera, now 15, eventually came to Dubuque with her family to escape the most recent spate of violence, which has raged for almost two years. Recently, the soft-spoken team was selected as one of 15 winners of this year's New York Times Teen Tiny Memoir Contest which asked students to write a 100-word narrative about a meaningful life experience. Vera's submission, which told the story of that February morning, was one of almost 13,000 from teenagers worldwide. This tiny memory of my life has changed me and made me a new person, Vera wrote in the New York Times article in which the winning memoirs were published. Vera grew up in the small Ukrainian town of Komarno before moving to Lviv when she was 12 years old. In school, Vera was active in student government. She played the piano and sang, and she was an avid ballroom dancer. All that ended when the war began. As news of the invasion broke across the world, Vera's uncle, who originally is from Ukraine but now lives in Dubuque, immediately called her family. He urged them to leave the country or at least go back to Komarno, which is closer to the Polish border. My parents packed some essentials, Vera wrote in her narrative. We drove to my grandmother's house at the border, allowing us to escape. Unbidden tears flowed down my cheeks. Only the women in the family, Vera, her younger sister, Emilia, her mother, and her grandmother, were able to cross the border into Poland two days after the war began. Her father stayed behind due to martial law that had been enacted in Ukraine. The law meant all men aged 8 to 60, age, age 18 to 60, could be mobilized to fight. Vera's uncle, Slavik Nakonachev, flew to Poland to meet them. They stayed there for four months, 
but could not obtain visas to come to the United States. After four months, we went back to Ukraine because things seemed calmer, Vera said. I went back to school in Lviv. While the western city saw less outright fighting than Ukraine's eastern border, Lviv experienced air attacks during the approximately six months Vera and her family stayed there. Her cousin was killed in battle, and her aunt's house was hit by a rocket. There were periods, like on Ukrainian Independence Day in August, when we had an alarm going off every hour. We had a shelter in the basement of our school, and I heard the bombs when we were in the shelter. Then, in mid-December of 2022, Vera's mother came into her room late at night with news. Nakonechnia had managed to secure visas for the entire family to travel to America. Vera, her parents, her sister, and her grandmother traveled to Poland, then flew to Chicago, where her uncle met them and brought them to Dubuque. I left everything in Ukraine, all my friends, my relatives, and my school, and I didn't know what would wait for me here, Vera recalled. We had a lot we left behind. The phrase left behind became the title of of Vera's submission to the New York Times writing contest. She had written a longer essay on her experience leaving Ukraine as part of an assignment for an English class at Waller Catholic High School where she enrolled in January of 2023. Barb Ressler, her teacher for that class, saw a notice for the writing contest and thought Vera's story would be ideal. I was so moved by her story and I thought it's perfect for this because it's so relevant, Ressler said. She's a smart, wonderful student facing really huge odds. After quickly revising her original story, Vera submitted a shortened version to the contest in in November. She was honored and grateful, she said, when she learned her memoir had been chosen for publication. Vera is now in her sophomore year at Wallard, where she is involved with student leadership and performed in the fall play. She is fluent in English as well as Ukrainian and Russian, and can understand multiple other Slavic languages, which made it easier to make friends and adjust to Dubuque. Still, everything is different, whether in her new home, from the educational system, to the way people interact. She worries for her family members who remain in Ukraine, and she misses her friends. Vera is unsure whether she one day will return to Ukraine. She always had planned to attend college in the U.S., which she still hopes to do, perhaps studying business or finance. She is also keenly aware that the country she left behind will not look the same should she return. In Ukraine, even if the war would end tomorrow, everything will be ruined and we will have to build a new country, she said. She paused. Probably that's my job to do as a Ukrainian, to come back and build a new country. Perfect Storm 
hits local health care workforce. Challenges include retirements, competition from other careers, and a growing older adult population. Nearly four years after the COVID-19 pandemic shut down much of the world, Dubuque healthcare leaders continue to fight ongoing workforce challenges that are prompting work providers to find creative solutions to complex problems. While providers said the industry's workforce shortages were worrisome before 2020, they agree the pandemic only exacerbated the pre-existing problems. Factors such as healthcare workers retiring en masse, a rapidly growing older adult population, higher pay in other careers, and the many healthcare jobs available in the tri-state area, all compounded with the economic impacts of the pandemic to create what one local hospital official calls a perfect storm of challenges. Left in its wake are providers investing heavily in recruitment and retention initiatives and appealing to lawmakers for help and awareness of the issue. Peggy Steckel, President and CEO of Stonehill Communities in Dubuque, said challenges in the healthcare workforce existed prior to 2020, but the pandemic made a difficult situation worse. Workforce is a huge major concern, Steckel said. It should be for all of us, honestly, because for people who are accessing care, it's going to delay that. Key Takes, president of Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center, pointed to several factors that collectively are feeding into healthcare staffing issues nationwide. Many healthcare workers quit or retired early during the height of the pandemic, she said, and more retirements are expected as the baby boomer generation ages, with about 46% of active physicians in the U.S. at least 55 years old as of 2021, according to a 2022 um, study. Despite wor sh shrinking workforce numbers, takes said, the number of people needing care only will increase as the population of people at least 65 years old is projected to be 80.8 million by 2040. That is nearly double that group's size in 2000, according to a 2021 report by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. It's kind of a perfect storm, I think, Take said, in healthcare specifically, because of the aging population, the workforce issues are even more concerning. The nature of healthcare jobs also creates challenges in hiring, according to Tracy Bauer, president and CEO of Midwest Medical Center in Galena, Illinois. Hospitals operate 24 seven, including on holidays, but are competing for staff with outpatient clinics that often are open for regular business hours, she said. While that always has been a struggle, she said the deep, the drop in workers caused by the pandemic made it worse. Bauer said staffing challenges also have made it harder for Midwest Medical Center 
to transfer emergency room patients when they need a higher level of care. She said facilities often have open beds, but not enough staff. Sometimes we're calling up to 25 hospitals looking for a bed to transfer one of our patients to, Bauer said. Jack Mesher, CEO of Hills and Dales in Dubuque, said the nature of the nonprofit's operation also limits his use of typical business strategies to improve workforce conditions. Because Hills and Dales, which serves people with disabilities, is funded mostly by Medicaid, raising prices isn't an option without reimbursement rates changing. Because patients need care all hours of the day, shortening operational hours is also not a money-saving solution. All the levers that are available to other aspects of the economy are really not available, Mesher said. Absent some investment or real capacity building solutions, it's just not tenable to move forward in an efficient way. Dubuque's unique challenges. Dubuque and the surrounding area have no shortage of healthcare facilities. With two major hospitals in Dubuque, a variety of clinics, nursing homes, and nearby critical access hospitals, providers agree the area's many healthcare options are an asset. However, with more providers come more jobs to fill. Mesher said Dubuque has been unable to build a larger pool of healthcare workers, which results in providers constantly pulling staff from other providers. Every provider is a critical piece of the healthcare infrastructure, Mesher said. But because of the lack of healthcare population workforce, we really aren't effective at building capacity because we keep passing it around. For the amount of funding, time, funding, time, and resources Hills and Dale spends trying to recruit and retain talent from other providers, Mesher wants to find a way to use these dollars to increase the pool of workers in the area so each location has enough caregivers. The clients and residents of Hills and Dales really need a primary care physician at a local clinic and they really need a nurse for that physician. But they also need a nurse at home and they also need a nurse if they have to go to the emergency department and they also need a nurse to staff the mental health unit, Mesher said. It's painful to be recruiting from resources that you need. Multiple critical access hospitals are located within a 30 to 40 mile radius of Dubuque's two major hospitals. Critical access hospitals are designated by states and aim to provide essential emergency care in rural areas where residents otherwise would have to travel a longer distance. Typically, these facilities must be more than 35 miles away from another hospital. However, there are four such facilities within 35 miles of Dubuque's hospitals. Rick Dickinson, President and CEO of Greater Dubuque Development Corporation said, because critical access hospitals have higher Medicare reimbursement rates, they have a competitive edge in wages. 
Dickinson said Medicare reimbursements should be increased across the board in Iowa. There's some challenges that are unique to Iowa and Dubuque in particular, given our proximity to Illinois and Wisconsin and the critical care facilities that are just across the border in a different state. Havens and Finley continues to closely and closely monitor job openings and is focused on retaining quality employees. The key to that, she said, is creating a culture and environment where employees feel respected and heard. Tapping into education. To move toward improving workforce shortages, many providers see education as a key piece of the puzzle. Stonehill Communities Director of Health Services, Matt John, said he speaks with students as young as 7th and 8th grade about potential careers in healthcare. I talk about all the different disciplines that make up our healthcare team and all the people that we rely on to work collectively together to really provide the best care and experience for the people that we're caring for, John said. Stonehill also partners with Northeast Iowa Community College to host certified nursing assistant courses on its campus. Once someone obtains a CNA certification, Stonehill continues to support career progression through scholarships so staff can obtain further education, Steckel said. We build that career pathway for them and we help pay for it, Steckel said. We grow our own. Bauer said Midwest Medical Center also offers a scholarship program that pays for participants' CNA certification if they work for the hospital. Bauer said the hospital also has stepped up marketing and wages and benefits to remain competitive. The reality is we all have to be working with our local education systems, she said. Even registered nurse programs are still sometimes a wait to get into, whether it's a two-year or four-year program. We have to have more schools willing to open up their programs to allow as many students into them as possible. Jennifer Nutt, Vice President of Nursing and Clinical Services for Iowa Hospital Association said, kids should be learning about the importance of healthcare workers as early as kindergarten in order to grow the pipeline of employees. Area colleges also have a part to play in increasing the number of healthcare employees locally. About a year ago, Southwest Wisconsin Technical College in Fenimore, Wisconsin announced a partnership with six area hospitals where each hospital pledged $75,000 for nursing students' tuition, additional nursing faculty, and other student support. Loris College in Dubuque last year announced plans to launch a program that will allow students to earn a bachelor's degree from Loris and a Bachelor of Science in Nursing through an accelerated pathway from Mercy College of Health Sciences, adding to the list of options available to earn healthcare degrees at local colleges. University of Wisconsin-Platteville officials last year 
entered an agreement with University of Wisconsin Oshkosh to similarly help students to earn nursing degrees from UW Oshkosh while remaining in Platteville. Also last year, Clark University, Loris College, and University of Dubuque announced plans to launch the Dubuque Promise Program, which will award funds to students who commit to remain and work in the tri-state area for two years after graduation. The program initially was open to students from the Dubuque area, majoring in several areas, including nursing. Jackie Meyer, head of UD's nursing department, said, the school focuses on ensuring students have a smooth transition to the workforce in to keep nurses in the profession. Students intent at a students intern at a partnering hospital during their last semester of school and complete three twelve hour shifts at a rural hospital. We lose a lot of nurses in their first year um, or two if they're not prepared for practice, Meyer said. There's a lot of burnout and stress and exhaustion that can come with the shock of that professional transition. Haven said in an emailed statement that Finley has launched several initiatives over the past few years to combat the workforce shortage. Besides increased and additional bonuses, Finley has introduced multiple programs aimed at supporting and recruiting students, such as the Senior Student Promise Program, which covers tuition and offers sign-on incentives to graduating clinicians. Takes said apprenticeships are an important part of how Mercy One brings in staff for hard-to-fill roles as they allow employees to learn on the job. People can come into our central sterilization department as a central sterilization colleague and then articulate into a surgical technician role, which is hard to recruit, which is a hard to recruit position, she said. Opinion. City must hold buildings owner accountable. When a development company floated a plan to tear down the Dubuque Brewing and Malting Company building and sell off the materials for salvage, preservationists balked. The city council and this newspaper agreed. The former brewery, later H&W Motor Express, was an imposing architectural presence in its North End neighborhood. There was no reason to rush to tear down the building when renovation was still a possibility. It's worth exploring the option of restoring the building, a TH editorial stated. That editorial was written nearly 20 years ago, and it feels almost that long that the North End neighborhood has been in a holding pattern waiting for developer Steve Emerson do something, anything, with the building. Emerson has been attempting for years to secure funding for to renovate the building into new apartments and commercial space,
but has not been able to come up with the millions it surely would cost to restore the structure. Additionally, he cannot apply for state funding for the project again until April. To be clear, this community cannot wait. The people and businesses of the Jackson Street and 30th Street area cannot wait. Engineers have said this building poses a significant danger to the public, given its condition, height, and proximity to Jackson and East 30th Streets. Part of 30th has remained closed since June, after city officials reported debris falling from the building. Jackson Street from East 29th to East 32nd Street has been closed since August. Sixteen property owners in the neighborhood were informed months ago that they are within a potential fall zone if the building were to come down. For Emerson, money remains an issue. He told city housing officials that after the first of the year, he told city officials just after the first of the year that he planned to move forward with demo demolishing the southern section of the structure because stabilization of that part of the building was not an option. Then, at the January 16th City Council meeting, Emerson outlined a proposal to demolish the southern portion of the building while recycling and salvaging materials. He would do that, he said, if the city wouldn't mind giving him a cool half mil to help him. After six years of empty promises and a building that is quite literally falling apart, he has the nerve to ask the city to chip in $500,000 for the partial demolition. Kudos to council members for not thinking about it long before giving Emerson a hard no. The city has already incurred some $75,000 in expenses just keeping roads closed so far. Emerson said he hopes to present a formal proposal to the city in the next few weeks, outlining his demolition plan and request for funding. Stick to your guns, council members. Not only should the city not pay for the demolition, Emerson should be fined for every day that work is not progressing. Indeed, Housing and Community Development Director Alexis Steger confirmed that's the plan. The first municipal infraction has a maximum fine of $750, and each subsequent infraction has a maximum fine of $1,000. One bright note, a check of the area by the city officials on Friday revealed reasonable progress had been made and no citation was issued. That's good to hear. But Emerson must continue to make progress, and the city must hold him accountable. The days of focusing on the preservation of this iconic building are sadly over. Now the focus must be on ensuring the safety of area residents. Editorials reflect the consensus of the Telegraph-Herald editorial board. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS.
the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Your reader is Jackie and Barbara. If you have any comments on this or any IRIS program, please call 243-6833 or toll-free at 877-404-4747. And don't forget, this and many other IRIS programs are available from our website at iowaradioreading.org. Now, we return to the Telegraph Herald and to this week's obituaries. John F. Ertel John F. Ertel, 84, of Guttenberg, Iowa passed away Wednesday, January 24th, at his home surrounded by his family. Visitation will be held from 8.30 to 10.45 on Monday, January 29th, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Guttenberg. Funeral Mass will commence at 11 a.m., with burial to follow in the church cemetery. Reverend Martin Breeze will officiate, with Deacon Jim Flaffley assisting. John was born on February 25, 1939, in Dubuque, Iowa, the son of Fred and Gertrude Souser Ertel. John attended Nativity Grade School, Loris Academy, and Bayless Business College. While in school, John helped assemble toy tractors in the family basement, which later became Ertel Company. John met the love of his life, Patricia Blairman, and they were engaged on Valentine's Day of 1960. They were married on November 26, 1960, and enjoyed 63 years of marriage. To this union, four children were born, Deb, Jim, Tom, and Bill. In 1974, John left the Ertel Company and, and moved his family to Guttenberg to be by the river he loved. He then started Guttenberg Industries, Incorporated, a custom plastic injection molding facility. John was so proud that his wife Pat and all four children worked in the family business by his side. He was also very proud to see Guttenberg Industries celebrate its 50th anniversary this year. John loved to go fishing with his wife. They enjoyed years on the river, catching fish and relaxing. The family enjoyed oh. the, the family enjoyed houseboating for seven years prior to moving to Guttenberg. John was also an avid hunter and enjoyed teaching his sons how to hunt, and together they enjoyed many hunting trips. He loved to garden, and everyone benefited from his huge crop of lettuce, tomatoes, and cantaloupe. John would make the rounds in the neighborhood, office, and factory, giving away his produce. He was so happy to share his produce that everyone enjoyed. John loved his swimming pool and the family to gather for laughter and a good cookout. There may have been a cold beer enjoyed as well. 
He enjoyed playing with all the grandchildren in, in the pool and watching them learn how to swim. He loved spending time with all his grandchildren, whether it was swimming, fishing, playing sequence, or cards. He was very good at talking across the table and being mischievous. He loved to tease all the kids. He would never pass up the chance for a good hot dog or or ice cream of any kind. He enjoyed trips to the barn for dinner with Pat and the family. Whoever was around, they would hop in the car and go. Survivors include his wife, Patricia, children, Deb, Chris, Moser, Jim, friend, Jackie Adams, Ertl, Tim, Lynn, Ertl, and Bill Ertl, all of Guttenberg, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, siblings, Joe, Helen Ertl, Carol, Mike, Lundergan, in-laws, Darlene Ertl, Sue Ertl, Diane, Don, Overman, Linda McClure, Doug, Deb, Bierman, and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, parents-in-law, Alfred and Dolores Bierman, grandchildren, Toby and Alyssa Ertl, brothers, Fred, Bob, Alan Ertl, in-laws, Nancy Ertl, Loris Ben, and Gary McClure. John and Pat enjoyed every day in their home living along the Mississippi River and would sit for hours watching the river barges pass by. There was no place better than their, their home. Slip the boat in and head out fishing. Gather with the family and enjoy life. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to Guttenberg Municipal Hospital, St. Mary's Catholic Church in Guttenberg, or St. Croix Hospice. Morris Funeral Home in Guttenberg is assisting the family, and information is available at www.morrisfuneralhomes.com. Memorials may be sent to Morris Funeral Home in care of the deceased, 207 South 1st Street, Guttenberg, Iowa, 52052. James L. Birds, Denver, Colorado. James L. Birds, formerly of Worthington, Iowa, passed away Monday, January 22, 2024. Jim had been living in Ajijic, Mexico since May 2021. His ashes are returning to Denver, Colorado, where he had lived since 1977. He was born August 20, 1939, to Mary and James A. Birds in Epworth, Iowa. In addition to his parents, he was preceded in death by his wife of 54 years, Noni, his sister Therese, 
and his brothers, Mark, Mike, and Dennis. He is survived by his sisters, Joan Birds and Donna Birds, as well as his and Noni's children, Jimmy, Joe, Jerry, Tammy, and Michelle. Also surviving is daughter-in-law, Renee, and sisters-in-law, Suzanne and Darlene. He will be greatly missed by his 14 grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren. He was their playmate, cheerleader, role model, and hero. He was also all these things for his many nieces, nephews, and their children. Jim was not just a father, brother, grandfather, and uncle. He was a true friend to all whose lives he touched. After moving to Denver, Jim started a truck lettering business that expanded and became the largest in a three-state area, employing many of his family. His artwork could be seen across the country. Jim loved to travel, Dubuque in Missouri to visit family and friends, Ireland to experience his heritage, the Bahamas just for the fun of it, all around the U.S. for work and play and multiple trips to Mexico where he fell in love with the people and culture. He retired in 2004, and after Noni's death, he moved to Ajijic in the state of Jalisco, where he quickly made friends with many other expats and some locals. Jim loved life and lived it out loud. Family, friends, food, and travel were the most important parts of his life. There will be a celebration of life in Ajijic on Cinco de Mayo and a celebration of life in Denver later this spring. Priscilla J. Lugrain Priscilla Jocelyn Lugrain, 31 years old, in Dubuque, passed away on January 22nd at 1111 p.m. at her home, surrounded by family. Visitation will be from 10 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. on Monday, January 29th at Leonard Funeral Home in Crematory. A funeral service will be held at 1.30 with Reverend Diane Grace officiating. Burial will follow in Mount Calvary Cemetery. She was born on March 17, 1992 in Queens, New York, the daughter of Jacinto Cruz and Esperanza Leonor Castaneda. She married the love of her life, Joe Lagrain, on July 10, 2020, in Dubuque, Iowa, at the Grand River Center. Priscilla graduated from NICC with a diploma for admin office associate and her associate degree in admin office management. She earned her associates while battling cancer. She was very proud of that degree. She worked at Cottingham and Butler as a bilingual members service coordinator as part of the Health Check 360 team. Priscilla was everything you could want in a person. She was full of love, compassion, and determination. She loved going to live music and having a good time with friends. A staple in her life, along with her husband, was going to the Spatsmatics and being fully engulfed in 80s music. One of her favorite songs to dance to when she was a teen was Suavemente. 
hitting the dance floor with her friends, brought her joy and made her feel like she didn't have a care in the world. Salsa, hip-hop, bachata, reggaeton, and even norteñas. She was a huge fan of Bad Bunny and was able to enjoy him in concert with her husband. Music was part of who she was. Priscilla and her husband Joe had weekly dinner dates with their close friends Anna and Charlie that included their favorite drink, margarita. The four of them got matching margarita tattoos to show their ten-year commitment to friendship and memories. Priscilla looked forward to visiting her home state of New York. Her home state was everything to her. She lived and breathed the atmosphere in New York, from the lights, shopping, and the hot roasted peanuts. It was a yearly vacation that the family looked forward to. She made a lot of memories every year going there. Family was everything to her. Her children were her passion, and the love she had for each of them was out of this world. She was so proud to be their mother. She was able to face the challenges in life with bravery and poise. She never let her fear lead her astray. She was spontaneous and so incredibly beautiful inside and out. She is survived by her husband, Joe Lugrain, their children, Jason, Xavier, and Camila, her father, Jacinto Cruz, her mother, Esperanza Leonora Castaneda, one brother, Brian Sly Cruz, and a sister, Genesis Cruz. The family wanted to thank the staff at Mercy One Cancer Center and Mercy One Hospital for the care. A special thank you to Harold Dura at Mercy One ER for being very informative, thorough, and compassionate during her visits there. He left a lasting impact when he may not have even known it. In lieu of flowers, please consider making a donation to the GoFundMe page set up for Priscilla and her family. Carmen C. Blush, Darlington, Wisconsin. Carmen C. Blush, 91, of Darlington, formerly of Cuba City, passed away on Thursday, January 25th at Lafayette Manor in Darlington. A private family service will be held at Howden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Cuba City. A private family burial will be held at a later date. The Howden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Cuba City is serving the family. Carmen was born on November 28, 1932, to Conrad and Mary Blush in Dubuque, Iowa. He married Anna May Stillmonkus on June 3, 1952, at St. Philomena's Church in Dubuque. He will be sadly missed by all who knew and loved him. Carmen is survived by his wife, Anna May, a daughter, Bonnie Davis, of Darlington, three sons, Donald, Donnie, Blosch of Schulzburg, Wisconsin, Gary Blosch of Darlington, Wisconsin, and Terry Blosch of South Wayne, Wisconsin. Sixteen grandchildren, sixteen great-grandchildren, 
along with many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents and a son, Ronnie, September 4, 1992, a son-in-law, James, Jim Davis, three sisters, one brother, and a grandson, Carson Plash. In lieu of plants and flowers, a Carmen C. Blosh Memorial Fund has been established. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.howdenshieldfuneralhome.com. Marcia L. Conlon. Marcia L. Conlon, age 70, of Dubuque, passed away at 4.40 a.m. on Friday, January 26th, at home with her loving family after a courageous battle with cancer. To honor Marcia's life, family, and friends may visit from 3 p.m. until 5.45 p.m. on Tuesday, January 30th at Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street. Funeral services will be held at 6 p.m. on Tuesday at the Funeral Home with Reverend Stephen M. Garner officiating. Marcia was born on October 14, 1953 in Dubuque, Iowa, daughter of Dale W. and Virginia L. Stearman. Marcia attended Dubuque Senior High School and was a member of the first graduating class at Hempstead High School in 1970. She was united in marriage to Paul Conlon on November 29, 1974 at Sacred Heart Church in Dubuque. They were blessed with a loving family and 47 years together before Paul passed away on July 30th, 2022. Marcia was employed at Clower Manufacturing beginning on August 24th, 1987 for 33 years until her retirement in 2020. She was a longtime member of Sacred Heart Church where she and Paul served as ushers. Marcia was an active person who was very athletic and enjoyed spending time on the river with family and friends. She was very creative and enjoyed cross-stitching and several other craft projects. She always planted beautiful plants and flowers, and the families always joked that her main hobby was cleaning. Marcia was an outstanding hostess who was a wizard in the kitchen creating delicious meals and delectable desserts. She loved animals and all of her dogs were treated like little people with fur. In her later years, she and Paul liked to take trips to the casino to try their luck. Spending time with her family was always at the top of her priority list and was the aspect of her life that brought her the greatest joy. Marcia was always a small but mighty woman, from the way she fiercely loved her family to the way she battled her cancer like a true warrior. She was very loved and will be missed tremendously. 
Those left to cherish Marsha's memory include two sons, Chad Conlon, Dubuque, Iowa, and Jonathan Conlon, Holmes, New York, three grandchildren, her siblings, Sue Baumhoven Campbell uh, from Texas, Kit Klutz, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, Carla here, Campbell, Texas, Brett Stearman, Dubuque, Iowa, Brian Stearman, Dubuque, Iowa, and DJ Stearman, Dubuque, Iowa, stepsister Laura, Dubuque, Iowa, and Kelly Pearson, Tulsa, Oklahoma, two brothers-in-law, David Reed, Center Point, Iowa, and Jim Conlon, Durango, Iowa, several nieces and nephews, and last but certainly not least, her beloved dog, Nugget. Marcia was preceded in death by her father and stepmother, Dale Stearman, her mother, Virginia Stearman, her husband, Paul Conlon, a sister, Robin Reed, a brother, Bruce Stearman, in infancy, and a nephew, Joshua Reed. Marcia's family would like to thank Dr. Ryan Still, Dr. Eric Engelman, and his team, the Palliative Care Team, Hospice of Dubuque, and all of the amazing medical teams along her journey. Their kindness and the loving care they provided Marcia brought her great comfort. Also, a very special thanks to Carla and Rick for traveling to Dubuque to stay with Marcia and care for her the past several months. We cannot express how much your sacrifice means to us. The family will thankfully receive your support through greeting cards and memorials in Marcia's memory, which may be mailed to Bear Funeral Home 1491 Main Street, Dubuque, Iowa, 52001, Attention, Marcia Conlon Family. Online condolences may be left for the family at bearfuneralhome.com. Martha Mary Rohde, Indian Town, Florida. Sister Martha Mary Rohde, O.P., died January 23rd at Cleveland Clinic Martin North Hospital, Stewart, Florida. Her funeral mass will take place at 7 p.m. February 6th at Holy Cross Church, Indian Town, Florida. A wake, memorial service, and burial will take place at a later date at Cincinnati Mound, Wisconsin. All county funeral home and crematory is handling arrangements. Sister Martha Mary was born September 9, 1946, to John and Florence Rohde in Chicago. She professed vows with the Dominican Sisters of Cincinnati in 1966 and received the religious name of Sister Alfonsa. She received a B.S. in elementary education at Edgewood College, Madison, and her master's in education from Cardinal Stritch, Milwaukee. She also attended the University of Dayton, Ohio, and received a master's in educational administration. 
Sister Martha Mary's ministry has been dedicated to education. In Illinois, she taught at St. Thomas More School and at Immaculate Conception School, Chicago. In Wisconsin, Sister Martha Mary taught at St. Joseph Barbu and served the Cincinnati Dominican Congregation as Mother House Prioress and assisted living prioress at Cincinnati Mound. In New Jersey, she ministered at St. James Ventnor as teacher and principal. In Florida, Sister Martha Mary taught at St. Andrew Cape Coral and then served as assistant principal. She also ministered at St. Michael Academy Fernandina Beach as teacher and then as principal. She was currently serving as principal at Hope Burial School, Indian Town, since 2015. Sister Martha Mary was preceded in death by her parents, John Rudy, Florence Davis, and stepfather, Corin Davis, a brother, John Rody, and a sister-in-law, Donna Rody. She is survived by a brother, Edward Davis, a niece, Kathy Schweswell, a nephew, John Rody, and her Dominican sisters. Memorials may be made to the Dominican Sisters of Cincinnati, 585 County Road Z, Cincinnati, Wisconsin, or given online at www.cincinnati.org slash donate. Anna Mae Weimer Anna Mae Weimer, age 97, of Dubuque, passed away at 9.15 a.m. on Friday, January 26th, at home, surrounded by her loving family. To honor Anna Mae's life, family and friends may visit from 3 p.m. until 5.45 p.m. on Wednesday, January 31st, at Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street. Funeral services will be held at 6 p.m. on Wednesday at the funeral home with Reverend Stephen M. Garner officiating. Following cremation, burial will be at in Mount Carmel Cemetery at a later date. Anna May was born on March 16, 1926 in Dubuque, daughter of Edmund and Ella Tiggs. Anna May attended Holy Ghost School and Dubuque High School. After school, she went to work with the battery factory and would eventually go on to work for Dubuque Container, staying with them through all of the name changes, retiring from Georgia Pacific after 33 years. Anna Mae married James D. Weimer on November 29, 1944, at the Holy Ghost Church Rectory. They celebrated 46 years of marriage and raised their children together before James passed away on August 24, 1991. Anna Mae was a longtime member of Holy Ghost Church, where she was a member of the Rosary Society. In her free time, she loved going to play bingo, watching the dog races, and trying her luck at the casino and on scratch-off tickets. 
in her younger days, she enjoyed playing euchre with friends. Anime lived good long lived a good long life. She loved her family and spending time with them brought her great happiness. She will be greatly missed. Those left to cherish anime's memory include her children, Joyce A. Lucas, Dubuque, Iowa, Karen L. Bear, Dubuque, Iowa, Linda K. Refsdorf, Davenport, Iowa, and Daryl J. Weimer, Dubuque, Iowa, eight grandchildren, 17 great-grandchildren, and 13 great-great-grandchildren. This brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for January 28th. I'm your reader, Jackie. And I'm Barbara. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Heifer Foundation. The Telegraph Herald can be heard each weekday at 2 p.m. All programs heard on Iris are intended solely for the blind and print handicapped. If you have any questions or comments on this or any IRIS program, please call our office toll-free at 877-404-4747. Thanks for listening.